welcome everyone today. Uh, thanks for joining us. I think we have a good, interesting talk um, set up for today. And in a minute, um, I'll let our student do the introduction. But first, I wanted to remind everyone that we are not having colloquium next week because it's spring break. Um, but we will be back the following week at our normal time um, for a presentation from Revive and Restore. So without wasting more time, I'll let Eric Butoto do the introduction for our speaker. All right, uh, our today's speaker is Dr. Rebecca Goldberg. She directs Pew's environmental science work, which largely focuses on research related to conservation and includes the Landfest Ocean Program and the Pew Fellows Program in Marine Conservation. Before joining Pew, Dr. Goldberg was a uh, senior scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a non uh, national nonprofit re research and advocacy organization where her work included scientific and public policies, issues uh, of uh, fish farming, antibiotic resistant and agriculture biotechnology. Dr. Goldberg also worked to increase market demand for more sustainably produced seafood and poultry through various partnerships with major corporations. She served on the Marine Aquaculture Task Force established by the Woods Hole Oceanography Institution in Pew. Uh, Dr. Goldberg holds a bachelor's degree in statistics from Princeton University a master's in statistics and a PhD in ecology from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Goldberg, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Okay, good. So I'm Becky Goldberg and um, to say a bit of my, about myself, um, I now work almost exclusively in conservation, but um, go back a, a few years and did a lot of work around issues in agriculture, biotechnology, where I got to know Fred and Jennifer um, and um, have continued to admire their work from afar. And I'm really excited that they um, invited me to speak today. Um, that said, I'm not a researcher. I actually work for an institution and in my day-to-day -day work, think about how we support science, both through grants and fellowships and people internally at Pew who are doing um, research. So I'm not gonna give a conventional scientific talk. I'm gonna talk about in general terms about how we approach some of our programs and hope that that is of interest to you. Um, so the title of my talk is Supporting Actionable Work Research That Informs Conservation. And um, I have um, four parts really to my talk. I'm first gonna give you some institutional context for the work, again, where I work and, and what I do. Um, I'm going to talk about what I've termed here as useful and usable science, how we support science that is actually useful and usable, they're related but not the same things um, in conservation. Um, how we support researchers to have more impact of their research so that their research actually informs what happens in the real world. And finally, a little bit, some of the ongoing sorts of learning we do. So with that, I'm gonna get it 
started and um, asked the first really important question um, that many of you may not know the answer to, and that is, what is a pew? Because I work for something called the Pew Charitable Trust. Well, um, the pews are a family, and this is Joseph Newton Pew, who was born in 1848 in Western Pennsylvania to a farm family. And um, he, he grew up in Western Pennsylvania, and um, some of you may know that uh, Pennsylvania in the um, late 1800s was sort of the Middle East of, of the oil and gas world and um, oil and gas exploration and production was booming. And um, Joseph Newton Pugh in about 1900 founded um, the Sun Oil Company, which many of you know today as Sunoco. And um, the company grew, he um, moved it to Philadelphia or his headquarters to Philadelphia, which would be close to refining and shipping. And um, no surprise, he and his family made a pretty good living. So um, the family um, was a, a family that believed in public service and charity. And in 1948, they established a foundation, the Pew Memorial Foundation, to start to um, donate some of their, their money. And in 1957, other um, family members created six other trusts um, to, to fund the charitable work. In 1974, they started investing in, in conservation. So a long time ago, maybe before conservation was really all that big a deal. Um, in 1995, they um, founded something called the Pew Research Center. And I, I just bring that up because the Pew Research Center, for those of you who know Pew, it's probably what you know when you see the Pew name um, in the newspaper or or online, um, it's probably about opinion polling, um, and that's work that the Pew Research Center does in the U.S. and abroad on all sorts of issues ranging, you know, from political issues to religion. Um, and finally, an important date um, in 2004, Pew became a public charity. Um, and um, I raise that because historically Pew had been in IRS parlance, um, a foundation which limits greatly, you know, what it does with its money, but through some idiosyncrasies of the law, Pew was able to convert itself to um, a 501c3 or a public charity, which meant that Pew um, could spend money on some of its own um, policy work as well as give money away. There's more to it than that, but I'm, I'm certainly not a legal expert on these things. So, um, Where's Pew now? Um, well, Pew has grown a lot since it became a 501c3, since it was able to start doing some of its own work as well as give money away. It now has um, a bit north of a thousand employees, so it's pretty big. There are staff in the United States and abroad. The main US office is in Washington, DC, although there's still a, a major office in Philly and one in Portland and staff, <coughs> staff in several countries abroad. And um, the institution focuses on a lot of things. One of them is conservation, but it also works in human health on a variety of social and economic issues and um, has a presence in arts and culture, particularly in Philadelphia. And it espouses um, a number of values, including being nonpartisan, being evidence-based, you know, our work should be based on science or, or facts. Um, engendering innovation and um, collaboration. So that's a little bit about Pew. 
Um, and I now like to talk a little bit about my world at Pew, my little corner of this big institution. Um, and that is environmental science at Pew or research and science as it's called. And um, we support um, in my unit, um, research and other scientific activities that inform conservation policy and resource management, which I'll lump together just to call policy very broadly. Um, you know, that can include things that are informal, you know, what people do when they're managing protected area all the way to like what legislators do, you know, pass legislation to do. And um, we do that through um, external grants, fellowships, and um, internal technical support at Pew. So um, in my talk today, I'm going to focus on um, two programs um, that we run um, that are um, ex externally facing. I'm, I'm not going to talk much about the internal support work at Pew. Um, and one of those programs is called the LenFest Ocean Program, and it is a grant-making program. It's not called Pew, it's called LenFest, and that's because um, through the generosity of Jerry LenFest and the LenFest Foundation, um, you know, that's a lot of the support we get for the, the program. Um, and its goal is to give grants that um, support research that makes a difference in marine conservation. And the other program I'm going to talk about is the Pew Fellows Program in Marine Conservation, or sometimes called the Pew Marine Fellows Program, which is a global program. Um, the Lenfest Ocean Program is not restricted to the U.S., but tends to be um, more U.S. or at least Western focused. Um, but the Fellows Program is truly international, and it gives three-year fellowships to um, mid-career researchers to pursue research projects and also um, gets them to join all sorts of um, activities, including an annual meeting to really build a community of researchers in marine conservation around the world um, who work together and, and basically further, further the field. So um, as you might imagine, you know, our theme in all of this is we're supporting science, we're supporting research, um, but our goal is ultimately to inform policy, and that's you know universal across what we do. We're not um, we're not focused at all on basic research. So um, so beginning to talk a bit about what we do, I thought I'd start by just flagging this article, which was in the New York Times um, about a week ago, and I saw um, you know these climate scientists are fed up and ready to go on strike, and the article um, came out in the right after the IPCC report, the International Panel on Climate Change, most recent report came out. And it was basically focused on the frustrations of researchers that they do all this you know, outstanding science and they do, um, and it's not making a difference in the real world. And um, you know, I was really interested to see that. I think climate change is a particularly thorny and difficult issue, but it's of course, what we try and tackle day in, day out, and have been tackling for um, well over a decade. Sorry, slide. So um, with that as um, sort of framing, I thought I'd talk a bit about the um, traditional, or what gets called the linear model of science, being very simplistic here about you know, how I'm talking about this. Um, and um, you, know, you can think about how it 
relates to a lot of climate science along with some of the other things that I'm doing um, or we'll talk about. So, um, you know, if you think about science traditionally, um, again, being simplistic, the scientist gets a cool project idea. Maybe they get it from talking to people in the department or a conference um, and they um, turn that idea into a research project. They publish in a journal and then, um, you know, the journal is gets out there and people people read it. Um, the challenge with this model of science, of course, if you want to have impact in the so-called real world, is that scientists read journals. Um, a lot of other folks do not. Um, and there has historically been an expectation that you can put out all this great science and then and people should pay attention to it. And then frustration. Why is it not paid attention to? And, and this is what some people um, in, in my part of the world derisively call the loading dock model of science. In other words, you keep chugging out, turning out journal articles and putting them on a loading dock and you know, expecting them to be taken advantage of. Um, well, that's, that's a very sort of old model of science. Um, and um, maybe 20 years ago or so, Roughly, people started thinking more about science and the fact that most decision makers, um, people in the real world, other than scientific community, don't necessarily read scientific journals for all sorts of reasons. And that what we really need to do is do a much better job of communicating the results and taking journal results and putting them in a shorter form, making them in plain English, getting them on social media, getting on newspapers, doing briefings and so on and so forth, which is... Um, all great, gets people to um, pay attention to the results. And, um, you know, I think this targeted sort of communication, strategic communication proved to be really helpful, but it didn't really, hasn't really solved the problem of how you inform policy um, because, you know, you can put out a lot of cool research and get it out there in, in some simple, attractive form. But if you're really going to affect what people do, the research results also don't have to just be clear, but they also have to be relevant to your audience and something that people can act upon. So I'm going to talk a bit about um, how, you know, we go about thinking about that. Um, and, um, you know, in... Um, my part of the world, we focus on um, all our projects on what are called, is called co-production or co-design. This may be a very familiar concept to many of you. And basically, the notion is that scientists engage information users um, in a research project so that instead of focusing the project on what potentially is the most interesting scientifically or cutting edge research, you ask, what's the information need? What's the information that's going to be taken up? Um, by um, a decision maker or someone working in policy or conservation practice that they will potentially incorporate, um, you know, into, into their thinking. So, um, so we focus on that. Um, this isn't really a new idea. In fact, it's something that's been done for many, many decades, um, you know, arguably in large part coming out of agriculture where people have um, or researchers, scientists have worked with farmers for a long time, both domestically and internationally through the so-called CGIAR system um, to um, develop research that's relevant and, and the farmers can use. But it's not something that's actually been, you know, I think until recently really taken up widely um, in conservation and to some degree, a lot of other fields too, although I don't claim to be an expert on all other fields. 
So um, how do we do this? Um, well, the first step and maybe the most important step in, in our co-production work is that the scientists are not the only people coming up with the project ideas. So I'm going to, because I work in conservation and particularly in marine conservation, you find yourself as the Lenfest Ocean Program and the Pew Marine Fellows. Um, I'm going to pick on a fisheries example here. And um, you might have a fisheries scientist who's thinking about projects, but in order to develop a project idea that actually be used in decision-making about fisheries, the scientist might talk to staff at NOAA who manages fisheries. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is the federal agency that manages um, fisheries in US waters, at least further out than three miles from shore. Um, I talk to conservation NGOs, to nonprofits who do advocacy around fisheries. Might talk to fishermen themselves because they might be interested in doing a project that um, you know affects how fishermen do what they do. Um, so, so you know, this is a, a fundamental part of co-production is making sure that your project idea um, is something that people actually are interested in knowing. Um, but then we often um, take it further and think about um, co-production um, with users actually involved in the research process. Again, being super simplistic here, but um, you might um, have an advisory committee um, to your project who um, are people who say work at a, a relevant agency or um, you know, are fishermen, whatever. Who, who provide you advice as your project goes on um, because the world is always changing. Um, the nature of issues changes. The timing from when information will actually be useful changes. Um, and so having this continuous feedback from external folks can be really helpful. Um, there are other ways also to um, involve users in um, projects, for example, Sometimes um, we funded projects where academic and agency scientists literally collaborate to um, address a problem. The academic scientists might bring some particular expertise and also their time. Um, the agency scientist um, obviously, you know, has some insight into what information will be useful. We've also done projects where um, we actually involve um, users or stakeholders in gathering the data, for example, um, I don't know, five years ago or so, we um, supported a project where um, fishermen actually collected data on, on spawning sites in the Southeast Atlantic. We were interested in, in where particular fish were actually spawning um, because those areas you want to protect and involving the fishermen in, in that project made sense, both because the fishermen have a lot of insights about where to look um, and um, also because it builds their interest in their project and belief in, in the results because they were involved. So there are a lot of ways to um, involve people um, in projects, but we find it's often um, extremely useful. Um, finally, a third part of co-production that we, we always do is, um, in our grants program at least, is, is sharing information with interested parties during the project. And, and the traditional model of communicating research results, often the communication is left to the end of the project when the results to communicate. But um, we generally 
back that up by a lot. And once a project is started, um, do, for example, a webinar um, about the project, reaching out to all sorts of interested parties to learn about it. Um, during a project, there'll be material on the web, there'll be fact sheets and so on, there may be briefings, there's obviously information um, once results come out. And the um, whole idea is to keep people informed, keep their interest and also get feedback because just as I talked about involving people you know, in a project, in the research part of a project, even just having discussions with them gives you useful information about what's relevant. And also, as I said, about the timing of a project. One of the, the biggest disasters with um, doing a project where you're trying to inform policy is having the results come out too late after decisions are made. And that's something we, we strive to try and avoid. Um, so now I'd like to turn and um, actually give you an an example of, of some of the work we do, of what I talked about was just a little bit general um, and talk about an example of a project from the Lenfest Ocean Program that's just wrapping up. And um, this project um, was, um, or is discussed in a paper that came out last month in Frontiers of Marine Science, the, the reference is there if you choose to get all the gory details. And, and the paper focused on how the Lenfest Ocean Program goes about thinking about giving grants, but it profiled this project as an example. And um, the project in question um, is in North Carolina. Um, it's um, headed by someone named Brian Silliman, who's at Duke and works on ecological restoration of, of coastal habitats. And um, historically, um, Coast, uh, coastal restoration has been, you know, focuses on plants usually or often um, has focused on um, putting out plants in um, somewhat uniform arrays, equally spaced because people are worried about competition between the plants. But in fact, there's a, a burgeoning academic literature that shows um, or at least suggests that sometimes different spacing can, can make a, a big difference to restoration um, success because plants actually have some mutual interactions that um, are useful. Um, they have positive interactions. And so um, we were interested in why, um, you know, why this thinking hasn't been adopted more generally and, and what research would you have to do to get it be adopted more recently. Um, more widely. And just to give an example of the sort of, you know, um, ecological restoration that gets done, some of it is with seagrasses, which are actually under the water and critical habitat, some of it is, which is with salt marsh, such as um, this is a picture of salt marsh in Virginia. Um, and um, people again, um, essentially uh, sow plants to bring back the marsh. Um, and, um, you know, the academic literature, for example, on, on salt marsh restoration shows that um, plants growing close together can be beneficial um, because in part, if you end up in a highly disturbed environment, um, there's less erosion if plants are clumped rather than spread evenly. There's some other research that shows that um, sometimes marsh mud becomes anoxic. And um, so that's very bad for the root systems of, of areas you're trying to restore. And if you um, actually clump plants, there is some sharing of oxygen through root systems, which leak a little bit of oxygen and actually 
therefore benefits to restoration from such clumping. So anyway, these are the sort of things that um, the academic literature shows but have not actually been widely adopted in restoration practice. So um, to start this project, um, um, the Lenfest Ocean staff with the researcher Brian Silliman um, started by um, talking to um, restoration practitioners and national level managers at, at restoration programs about what information do you need in order to think more about incorporating, potentially incorporating positive interactions as to restoration. And um, conversations quickly underneath, uh, you know, showed some key themes, one of which was no surprise that you need results from larger scale experiments. You know, small plots are great, but we work on bigger areas. Um, more information would be useful on how species interactions contribute to restoration success or failure and also long-term monitoring of areas. Um, and I don't think any of this is, is particularly shocking, but um, you know, it did underscore to, um, to staff that um, you, know, you really need some demonstrated success in, in a way that's meaningful to restoration managers if they're gonna move ahead and adopt something because restoration is expensive and they don't wanna fail. You know, there's nothing, people don't wanna put however many million dollars into a project and then have whatever it is just not work. So um, moving on to talk a little bit more about the project. Um, you know, once the project um, began to get underway, um, you know, we really stressed um, establishing relationships and collaborations with the people actually doing restoration, other uh, stakeholders to ensure that the research is relevant, timely, and to encourage the uptake of the research results. And um, so the way the project unfolded, um, the grantee identified four active restoration sites in the US and abroad to, to cite the research so that it wasn't you know, off somewhere separate, but actually part of a larger restoration project that was already ongoing. Um, it's had some cost benefits too. Um, and at each location, the grantee um, collaborated with um, at least one local researcher and um, practitioner, someone involved in the mechanics of restoration, on the design and execution of the field experiments and, and kept them focused on, on local habitats and organisms so that um, the experiments would be relevant to what's going on, on in those places. And finally, the Lenfest Ocean Program staff um, have done a lot to um, disseminate research information on an ongoing basis through webinar at the beginning of the program, putting up fact sheets and so on. Um, I should say in this project, dissemination has been a little bit hampered by COVID. I mean, just because there aren't the same in-person gatherings as there might always be. Um, but nevertheless, there's, there's been a fair amount of effort. And um, oops, so this project is, is just winding up. Um, so the results, you know, I'd say are just coming in, um, but, um, you know, it has certainly been successful in some ways so far. Um, one notable um, thing that happened was the US Marine Corps read about the project and decided to adopt some of the techniques in some of the um, habitat it manages. Um, 
And um, I believe in one of the sites abroad, um, some of the um, restoration practitioners are beginning to incorporate some of the practices. So, um, well, you know, projects like this don't show instant success. There's not a eureka moment that goes, oh yes, it's, you know, it's adopted, it's done. Um, you know, I think that um, there's certainly a lot of movement in a, a very positive direction. Um, so um, just moving on, I thought I would flag um, before I wind up this section of my talk that, you know, I put together this section of the talk and then I found out from a colleague that, um, you know, not only am I talking about a project that's always already going on in North Carolina, um, but um, this kind of work might be really familiar to all of you because you are unique being in the one state in the union that actually has um, an office um, in the state government that's designed to bring together um, researchers and um, people working in the state to address problems, um, you know, provide information that's actually useful to decision makers. So something called the North Carolina Office of Strategic Partnerships. Again, you may be familiar with it. There's long been an office in California or a program in California that does this for ocean science issues. Um, but this is the first time I've actually learned of a state having a, a cross-cutting program. So that's really, really cool. Um, and I hope to keep learning more about what they're doing. Um, so moving on, um, I thought I would um, turn to talking a bit about how we support researchers to advance um, what I term here as evidence-informed conservation. In other words, to do research that has um, an impact on conservation in the real world. And in this context, I'm going to talk a little bit about our Pew Marine Fellows Program, um, which um, I believe I noted earlier says that uh, provides three years of funding for mid-career scientists to undertake a research project. And um, these fellows um, join a, a global community of marine researchers who then share their expertise and build relationships and hopefully um, eventually collaborate to advance ocean science and conservation around the world. At least that's our, you know, our vision for the program, um, which has been going on a long time. And, and you know, I, I think there's some truth to that vision, but although I'm not gonna go into that in great detail. Um, but um, about six years ago, seven years ago, we started um, thinking about the program um, and how well it was working and how well it wasn't working. And while it was doing um, some great things, we recognized that a number of um, fellows um, did amazing research projects, but they didn't always have the, the impacts um, that the fellows actually wanted them to have. And so we started something called um, the Pew Marine Fellows Impact Initiative to try and increase the likelihood that um, Marine Fellows research would contribute to improved environmental conservation, or at least provide evidence that people use to, you know, inform their conservation practices. And um, you know, one of our focuses was just helping fellows to um, understand the management decision-making context in which they work, so that you know they would think about their projects, not just in the context of the science, but exactly how they get the science from um, you know, the research stage to, to people who will actually use it. And um, 
we we focused on um, four sort of parts of the impact initiative. Um, it's a little bit simplistic, but four mechanisms for for moving it forward. Um, one was just um, orienting new fellows to um, multiple types of research use, to thinking in different ways about how their research might be used. And people tend to focus a lot. And in the One Best Ocean program work, I talked about certainly guilty of this on, on what are called instrumental in, impacts, that um, there's a direct use of, of research, you know, in, in a policy decision um, or in setting up a marine protected area or something like that. But there are also a lot of other ways that research can have impacts. Um, for example, um, you know, people who are involved in a research project may develop an ability to do something that they then carry forward. An example might be that if you have a research project that's aimed at understanding the value of an area of mangrove forest that you want to be protected, maybe, maybe that area does get protected, partly informed by the research. But in doing that work, if you involve some of the community as research assistants using drones who monitor the area, they might carry that skill forward and be able to monitor the area after, um, you know, after it's it's protected. Um, there are also a lot of research impacts that are simply around interpersonal relationships. So, for example, um, you know, the researcher who provided the information about that mango forest that led to be protected might go on to do other things, but the relationships that he or she has built up in that original project um, might cause that person to be called back when there's some sort of ecosystem assessment that wants to be, that's going to be done in the area to provide information. And um, so, um, so the point is there are a variety of, of, of types of research use that, that fellows should think about. We then work with the fellows, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit more detail, um, to think about the plans for their projects, provide some tools to just plan them systematically, thinking about how their research will be used. We provide some support for project implementation. Um, getting talking talking to staff talking to other fellows about as the projects move forward what they're doing what problems they're running into whether they're making progress um, and the flexibility to modify projects as, as people move forward and and finally very importantly we provide um, facilitated networking um, where we um, pair new fellows or it's more than pair we we introduce new fellows to other people in our community of, of fellows and alumni of the program. It's close to 200 people um, who might have similar interests, useful skills, et cetera, so that they can learn from them. So that's, I'm sorry if that's a little bit long-winded, but that's, that, those are the ways we move this program forward. And I thought I'd talk in more detail about one piece of that. You know, a lot of this is a fellowship program. It's not really transferable to people who aren't in a fellowship program necessarily or, or something similar. But, um, but I think one of the most useful things in the impact initiative that we do um, is hold workshops for new fellows um, where fellows work through their projects using um, 
a conceptual tool called an impact pathway. Some of you may know this as a theory of change. And basically all you're doing is tracing steps um, from project activities to interim and ultimate project outcomes. And this is just a picture of a workshop. Um, that's me sitting in the foreground there. Um, we use lots of post-it notes and people, um, you know, work out all the steps of their projects. And being scientists, these people usually have the science part totally worked out. But in a fair number of projects, there's some sort of thing that when you systematically work out all the steps of the project from um, the science to the, you know, intended or hope for impact, there's a black box where it's like a miracle occurs and somehow information is transferred from someone to someone else. Um, and identifying where those black boxes are, where those assumptions are, and unpacking them is really the very useful part of this exercise. And we've become real fans of it and now actually use this often for research projects internally at Pew too that are meant to fund Pew's more advocacy-oriented um, conservation work. Um, again, nothing, nothing very fancy, but... Um, it's just a time to reflect on, on what you're doing and be systematic. So moving on, I thought I'd just give a, a couple examples of, of how um, the exercise has been successful with Pew Marine Fellows. I have a picture of a sea turtle here because in, in two cases, we've had researchers working on sea turtles, one in Indonesia, one in South Africa, where when they went through the impact pathway exercise, they, they recognized, hey, um, you know, I'm not reaching early enough in my project, the people who are actually managing turtles. In one case, it was some sort of, it was a scientific advisor committee, in other case, uh, um, a management body, but reaching out to folks early in the project, getting them involved. Um, small step perhaps, but, but ultimately makes a difference. Other examples in which people have modified their projects based on the um, impact pathways include a, a researcher in Chile who was working on the problem of plastic pollution in the ocean, and he was working with um, students to gather plastics from beaches in Chile, um, you know, to see what it was and how much there was and so on. And working through the exercise made him realize simply that he needed to gather all the people you know, involved in running this project together and to retreat early in the project so it was better organized. Um, uh, fourth example, um, a fellow who um, is working in, in Brazil with um, small-scale fishers, people who fish for subsistence or maybe for local markets. And he um, was executing a project to help them gather data so that they would gather data on what they're catching um, with the notion that the community and eventually the local government would have some more information about what's being caught and what the trends in fisheries are. And because um, governments often don't pay a lot of attention to, to small scale fishers. So um, he was planning to develop a handbook for these folks to help them um, gather information. And one of the other um, new fellows um, at the workshop um, when they were discussing impact pathways, um, who also worked with small scale fishers, but in a different part of the world, started asking this fellow in Brazil about the literacy level of the fishermen 
fishermen he would be working with. And it made the fishermen, not the, the, the fellow um, in Brazil, rethink how he was developing his handbook because he realized he had to deal with people with a lot of different capacities. So, so those are all sort of trivial things. They're all sort of, perhaps they're all sort of small things, but you know, they're the kind of things that to my mind can make the difference between projects being successful and, and not and thoughtfully approaching them. So again, I've become a real fan of um, using impact pathways or theories of change for research projects. Well, with that, I thought I would um, wrap it up by talking a bit about you know, how we move forward, how we think about what we do um, in, as we figure out what we're doing well and what we're not when we're funding um, grants, research grants or, or fellowships. And, um, you know, one of the challenges is, is of where I sit is we are a research program, we're supposed to be rigorous and all these sorts of things, but we're not actually like doing, necessarily doing the best research on how we do research. Um, in part because it's not actually so easy to do something like a randomized control trial of our, of our programs. But we do try at least to improve what we do and be reflective and, and observe. Um, so for our grants program, the Lenfest supported research projects um, in 2016, um, we came up with a way of thinking about the um, impacts of the projects and what we were trying to achieve. Um, and all our projects are supposed to make a scientific contribution through peer-reviewed papers, and then you can look at more things like citation indexes or web analytics and so on to you know, see what the impact of those papers are to, to people's knowledge, um, all good. But, but really our goals um, ultimately for our research projects are that they um, inform policy or they influence policy. The difference being that when projects inform policy, the research is considered um, in deliberations about a policy, um, as when they influence policy, the research actually becomes a basis for a decision. And we're happy, quite happy with either of those outcomes because we're a research program. Um, you know, we recognize that we're not in a position to necessarily always influence policy. Um, people make decisions for all sorts of reasons science and research hopefully is one part of the, the decision-making criteria, but people also have important values, as you know, um, politics plays a role and so on and so forth. So that um, to us, we're successful if simply, you know, people take the research seriously and, and consider it. And, and that's not, so we try and track that through all sorts of ways. There's no magical way to do it, but at least keep spreadsheets for the projects and and, and collect information about, um, you know, how research is, is used or, or talked about over time. And, um, you know, I think I can say from our experience that we're pretty satisfied that um, using co-production helps ensure projects produce useful information and generate user interest in the results. Um, it ends up um, increasing the likelihood that we will inform policy. Um, I think it, doing doing the exercise of, of uh, looking at project impacts, though, has also made us realize that we undervalue some of the softer benefits of co-production. I talked about this a bit in the context of the fellows program, but when we set up this system in, in the um, 
our grants program, we were really focused on sort of the instrumental impacts. Are we influencing or informing policy? But really some of the, the real benefits of what we do come from longer term relationships that researchers build with people involved in resource management or policy decisions. And as you build those relationships, um, you know, the scientists are tapped more to provide results and, and, and um, a scientific perspective. And that could be as, as big an impact as, as uh, you know, some of the, the shorter term, more instrumental impacts. And finally, we become really cognizant that co-production can be very resource intensive and that in some senses our, our grantees are privileged in that um, the Lampest Ocean Program staff um, provide a lot of help with outreach um, for projects. They also help, um, you know, define, um, work with researchers to help define what user interests are at the beginning of a project. Um, and that's not something that all researchers have access to. Um, and so, you know, one of the struggles looking forward, I think, as we think about applied research, um, you know, is how, how scientists can go about doing it in a way that um, works for them, um, because it's not reasonable to anticipate that everybody with a lab and a high teaching load will also have time to be scoping the policy environment and engaging in outreach and so on. And, you know, I think that's, that's a central challenge of, of doing research that, um, you know, it informs policy. For the fellows program, um, we um, make a point of conducting um, interviews and surveys after we have various activities um, for the purposes of what's called monitoring, learning, and evaluation. That's, that's jargon. Um, but basically, you know, asking people what they thought, what they got out of, uh, out of an experience, what they got out of a project, so that we at least um, have some information um, about what we're doing that works and maybe doesn't work. Um, and um, I think we found that um, impact pathways and our other activities and generally appear to be helpful, but we continue to make adjustments um, to get better at, at fostering research that informs and advances conservation. So anyway, um, that's what we do. Um, it's all a work in progress and probably always will be, <laughs> but um, I hope it's a, a useful description and at least has some parallels or is of some interest to those of you at uh, GES. Um, I know that you're also interested in um, and do a lot of fabulous work to um, interact with policy and project product development. So, um, so I think we, we face um, some similar sorts of considerations. So with that, I'd love to take any questions or comments. And I'll end my slideshow. Great, thank you so much. Um, so uh, if anyone has a question, feel free to use the raise your hand function. Um, you can also drop it in the chat, but if you feel comfortable talking, uh, I think it's a lot better if people ask their own question than if I read it for them. So um, yeah, we'll give a minute for anyone to uh, raise their hand. 
hand. Okay, Fred, would you like to ask a question? Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. You know, there are lots of groups, it seems to me, that would be funding research, oceanic conservation research. And I wonder how the funders interact with each other in terms of, I don't know, getting added benefit or not stepping on each other's toes or how, how you do that? Um, that's a good question. So um, there's certainly a lot of ocean research that's funded um, through the government um, or through governments because um, it's international. Um, there's actually a fairly limited amount that's funded through um, private foundations and whatnot. And some of that is basic research, which, you know, I talked about applied research entirely, the focus on that today, but basic research is, is really important too. Um, and um, the private funders and a few of the government funders tend to interact through, um, you know, some funders, um, organizations, um, there's something called the um, Biodiversity um, Funders, which has a, a Marines group. Um, but I, but there is no sort of central place where all the groups interact. Um, so, um, so, you know, I think, well, I don't know how, how to, what else to say, but we probably could be more coordinated than we are. Um, but we also deal with different mandates. Um, the folks from government programs having fairly different mandates than the people in the um, in private funding who are more conservation oriented. Um, and um, so anyway, um, I don't know if that's a very satisfactory answer. Fred, but it's a partial well, answer. Well, it, it, it's helpful to understand that. I mean, this is a problem, you know, more generally, right? And, um, you know, sometimes you can use those things to synergize, but other times they actually just never get really sorted out. Yeah, yeah. Just to tell a story, this, this might be a little bit tangential, but, you know, there is more interest, I think, in, in the U.S. government side now about doing co-design or co-production of projects so that information is, is useful. Um, so the person who runs the Lenfest Ocean Program two weeks ago was on a panel for an interagency program that supports oceanographic research. And then the person who runs that program is not an oceanographic researcher, but was brought in as the expert of co-design. Um, and um, the way the projects that were being reviewed were supposed to be scored um, was that you couldn't get the highest score unless you had a, a manager or some sort of you know, practitioner or someone who's involved in decision-making involved in your project who could use the results, sort of the, you know, what I pointed to as, as a fundamental part of co-production or, or co-design. And um, the one who runs the Lenfest program came away from that panel saying it was, you know, it was often a struggle that there were a lot of scientists on the panel who would give the highest score to a project that had no manager involved at all, um, simply because it was great science, you know, which it undoubtedly was, but that, you know, it's still really hard, um, I think in a lot of the uh, community to get across the idea that, um, although it's wonderful to, to do the coolest, most innovative science, you know, sometimes what you really want to do is do the work that's actually going to be used <laughs> and and that may take you in a different place and 
and there's no right nor wrong to, you know, how you choose to support science, but you should choose a, between the two at least and, and what you're going to prioritize. And it's, and it's often uh, quite a hard exercise to get the applied and prioritized. So. Yeah. Thanks. I see Anna has her hand up. So um, Yes, I have a professional development type of question. How does someone end up in a career track similar to yours? And what type of training, what type of skills are you guys looking for uh, for equivalent positions? What can you recommend to our students as a types of, I don't know, courses and experiences, maybe soft skills um, that they would need in a position like yours? So, um, so from we hire, um, we hire different sorts of people. I mean, there's actually part of the work we do, there are a lot of operational skills involved too. So not everybody's a scientist, some people are communicators um, too. But um, among the science staff, we look for people who um, have some practical experience applying science. So there are people who have worked in government, there are people who have worked in nonprofit organizations, um, or people who've worked on Capitol Hill, um, but have gotten, I think a part of it's a change of mindset, but just that they, they've worked in a setting where science was not what the world was all about, but it's just one consideration. And so they can contextualize um, you know, when people want to pay attention to science and what they don't and, and you know, how, how you can craft projects and communicate research in a way that engages people who don't think about science all the time. Um, so, um, you know, when I think about people who have um, advanced degrees, um, who are on our staff now. One of them came out of USAID. One of them came out of a, a NOAA climate change program. Um, one of them worked um, at a nonprofit conservation NGO. Um, another one ran a fellowship program for the Nature Conservancy. So, um, it's another person who came from the Nature Conservancy. So they're people of that ilk. And we generally do not hire people straight out of academia um, because um, that's a, it's a bigger adjustment, <laughs> um, if that's helpful. So if, if I think of students want to get jobs in the sort of work that I do, it's really important, say, to get a AAAS fellowship, um, which can give you some experience. or um, to um, you know, work for a conservation organization for a couple summers or whatever. I mean, it's a, it's a case of getting some um, experience outside of being strictly in the academic community. Real life experience in, in some sort of nonprofit work, ideally. Yeah, yeah, or nonprofit or government. They, they're both really important. And you know, I'm sure in, in genetic engineering, you know, you might be different kinds of experience too. But um, but yeah. Thank you. Hey, um, I think Scott Shore has had his hand up for a while. Thanks. I'm Becky. Thanks for a good talk. Um, in 
Um, talking about the results of your research, how it's presented, you talked about the metrics of informing and influencing. I guess, have you seen a difference between who the end user is, whether it's a Congress or congressional committee, or if it's a regulatory agency, or if it's an industry like fisheries setting a quota, and how well the results of what you've been doing on your projects is accepted and how well it informs or um, influences? And do you do it? different presentation of your results for the research, depending on who that end user is? Yeah, well, we would definitely present it differently depending on the end user. Um, you know, I'd say uh, we're, at least in, in our grants program, we're somewhat biased because in that, and that so much of the research has been aimed at agency personnel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and in a way, we're somewhat privileged, at least in for projects that have to do with fisheries, because it's a hugely technical area that involves a lot of modeling, because you can't see what goes on underwater. And so there's kind of a, a more receptive audience. But I think probably the, the most influence we have is, is with, with agency personnel, um, not so much Congress. Um, and... Um, we have done one really successful project with fishermen about um, avoiding bycatch of particularly endangered species. In other words, species fish caught by accident um, and creating a system to avoid that. Um, but that was kind of an unusual project. So, you know, I would say agencies are, are probably our, our sweet spot Thanks. today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's probably a little bit different in the fellowship program um, because it's such a global program. Um, and when you start working in um, lower income countries, the ways in which you influence things differ. You know, or the agencies may not be well-funded or equipped or whatever they do enforced, for example. So, um, that's probably more scattered in how the projects create influence. Okay, well, we're at the end of the hour. Um, Becky, would you mind hanging on a few extra minutes? We have a couple more questions. I don't mind at all. And I know I went like 10 minutes over time. So. That's okay. Um, okay. So if everyone just helped me thank Becky for coming and giving uh, this really informative talk, uh, and then we will um, close out for today. So, but we will hang on to the Zoom for additional questions. So um, thank you very much.